everyone! Before we start, I wanted to let you know, if you would like to watch our whole service, head to our website, that's dc2.me, and from the media drop-down, click Sermons. You can watch our whole service there. And now, here's this week's sermon. All right. Hey, we are in a series. Maybe you've been here each week, or those of you joining us online, maybe you've been following each week. We are in a, a serial a series on the life of Jesus through the lens or through the perspective of one of Jesus' biographers named Matthew. Uh, Matthew wrote what's called in the Bible a gospel. We would commonly call it a biography. It's not quite a biography in the sense that Matthew is intending to make a point, and so he often will shuffle stories out of historical order. And in the 21st century, at least, we get a little hung up on this kind of thing, where we say, oh, a biography has to be exactly accurate to when and how things happen. Matthew is doing what's technically, for our nerds in the room, called a hagiography, where he is saying, listen, there's this guy, everyone needs to get to know this guy. And if you get to know this guy, he will change your life, because he's more than just a guy, he is God. This is Matthew's point. And like most uh, books, Matthew is writing to a particular audience, and not to put you off, but it's not most of us, unless you have a whole lot of Jewish blood running through your veins. He, was not, he did not particularly have you in mind. He was writing to a Jewish audience. So oftentimes what happens in Matthew is he's dropping these little landmines in his stories that his Jewish audience is stepping on and getting blown up by, quite frankly, which is why in Matthew, out of all of the biographies of Jesus, the religious leaders are the angriest because he's provoking them so much. That's why later in the book of Matthew, if you want to read ahead on your own, you know, when Jesus, when Jesus calls a religious leader a whitewashed tomb, I've been called a lot of names, 26 years in local church leadership. I've been called some names. I've also had objects thrown at me. I know, wasn't that fun? Uh, I had somebody call me and he said, listen, we need to do an intervention with my wife. And I went over there and things were thrown as we tried to help her go to rehab. That wasn't in the notes and probably, frankly, not in the next service either, but uh, it happened. There it is. But Jesus called religious leaders whitewashed tombs, like he was provoking them. What he was trying to do, he was trying to dislodge religiously familiar people out of their familiarity so that they could have an encounter with God that would change their life. So maybe, as it turns out, Matthew was writing to at least some of us in the, in the room. I know for many of us in the room, we have decades of following Jesus under our belt. Some of us in the room, uh, this might be like, you are brand new to this whole operation. You're trying to figure out, like, is there a God? If there's a God, what kind of God is there? So we are, I don't remember how many weeks, but we're several weeks into this series on Matthew. What's interesting about today's story, there's two things of interest. It's the first story recording Jesus as an adult. This is the first story. Okay, Jesus has grown up. He's starting his ministry. He's starting his teaching. What's the first thing he does as an adult? That's interesting. But also what's interesting is most of this story that we'll read today most of this story, there was no eyewitness except for Jesus. You just think about it, pretty much every story in the Gospels, uh, someone else other than Jesus witnessed it. And so Matthew, that's what he did, is a lot of Matthew, he was a direct eyewitness. He was there when it happened, uh, to quote Hamilton, those of you who have, he was in the room when it happened. That's Matthew. And so he's like, wow, this is incredible. I'm experiencing this for myself. I want to tell you about it. But this story, Matthew was not there. And, and after the first paragraph or so, you'll see nobody was there 
except Jesus and this character whose title is the Satan. Yeah, okay. Now, how is it that this story ended up in the Gospel of Matthew? We don't know. We don't know. We have to engage our imagination. So I'm going to invite us to imagine a way. I'm not making a claim that this is how it happened. I just find it provocative. And if Matthew's trying to provoke us, I would like to provoke us too. My theory, this is just a theory. So don't at me if you don't like this. I don't want to hear from you. This is just a theory. My theory is that the disciples saw the way Jesus prayed and they said, we don't pray like that. I've never in my life called God who is scary, Daddy, for example, the disciples said, and they said to Jesus, would you teach us to pray the way you pray? Can we have a pint of what you're drinking is what the disciples are saying to Jesus. And then Jesus taught them the Lord's Prayer. Now that's all in the Bible except for the pint part. That's all in the Bible. And in the middle of Jesus teaching them to pray, he prays this prayer and lead us not into temptation. Now, how many of you have ever prayed the Lord's Prayer and you get to the sentence and lead us not into temptation? Who's ever? Yeah, those of you watching online, almost everyone in the room putting their hands up. The Lord's Prayer, we've prayed it so many times, so many of us, whether you're in church or not in church, it's probably the most famous prayer in history. And the disciples, Jesus teaches them and lead us not into temptation. And in my imagination, one of the disciples, in my imagination, it's always Peter, because Peter was not afraid to look stupid in front of people. It's actually one of the great traits about Peter. I think Peter said, Lord, have you ever been tempted? Like, why are you praying this prayer? You don't look like anything ever bothers you. You always seem to know what to do, know what to say. Have you ever been tempted? And then Jesus regales them with the only story recorded in the Gospels that he alone experienced. Matthew chapter 3. We'll start a little bit before that moment. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John, this is John the Baptist. You have to tune in for last week's if you want to know about him. Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John, his cousin. John tried to deter him saying, <laughs> what? Hold on just, just a hot minute here. I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? And Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. And then John consented. And then here's the part that's just Jesus himself. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he got up out of the water and at that moment heaven was opened and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him and a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. And then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Yeah, Matthew's prone to understatement. The tempter came to him and said, If you're the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And Jesus answered, It's written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. That's a landmine for the Jewish audience. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you're the Son of God, he said, Throw yourself down, for it is written, The devil quotes Scripture at the author of Scripture, the irony ought not be lost on us. The devil says, for it's written, he will command his angels concerning you. They will lift you up with their hands, and so you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, yeah, it's also written, 
I see your psalm and I raise you. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give to you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. This is my favorite of the temptations. I don't know if you're supposed to have a favorite temptation. It doesn't quite seem right, but this is my favorite one because of the irony of it. Here is Satan who can't create, what's the church word for it? He can't create a damn thing. Satan cannot create anything. He can only twist creation. He does not own anything. He rents his real estate, right? He's not a homeowner. And here he is saying to the, to the God who spoke everything into existence, I'll give it to you. That had to be, I mean, Jesus was at the end of his rope, very hungry, but that had to be funny on some level to Jesus. Let me, let me show you all creation and act like I can give it to you. All this I will give to you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. But isn't that the way temptation works? Temptation does distort reality in the moment and you lose track of reality and suddenly whatever's in front of you is like, this looks really appealing. I think this is true. I think I need this if I'm going to be somebody in my life or I'm going to be satisfied. And Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it's written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And then the devil left him and the angels came and attended him. And when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee. That's our text for the day. Um, I, I, I added that last one. I wasn't sure where to end uh, this because the temptation narrative doesn't typically end with John being in prison, but it sure struck me as an incredible uh, set of events. But before we get to that, I, I just know that particularly maybe those of you who are not church people or maybe you're newer to the whole idea of faith, I mean, it, it's no problem that you're getting absolutely tripped up at how comfortable I seem to be talking about the devil, right? Like, is that part of what's going on? You're like, come on, dude, you look like you're probably an intelligent guy. And here you are, straight-faced, like without any apology or explanation, just talking about the devil like he's a real thing, right? Like in the 21st century, do we really believe in a Satan, in a devil? Just a couple of things I just want to point out here. First of all, yes, we do. It's much worse than you think. Uh, we are much weirder than you think. Um, followers of Jesus believe in personified evil. And because for many of us, we've experienced it firsthand. And so let me just kind of maybe lay my own um, landmine on you on that one. I went through a phase as a, a pastor, for me it was when I was in graduate school and seminary, where I thought I had, had graduated from believing in a devil. I was like, oh, come on. Like, this is a bit much, isn't, isn't it? And then as a pastor, having graduated from seminary when my nose was out of the book and in the lives of real people, um, I, I would encounter people where evil had been done to them. Um, all, all I can say, I, I want to be, be sensitive to this. I don't like using tragedies as sermon points. It feels dishonoring. So I just want to say this in a way that's sensitive. If we were in Buffalo, New York, and we were sitting down with the families of the people who were gunned down because they were targeted for their skin color, um, some people today say, well, there's no really such evil, there's mental illness. Do you know how offensive that is to people who are mentally ill? The idea that because you're mentally ill, you're somehow evil? Come on, we're smarter than that, come on. Uh, this young man had passed all those mental assessments. What he did was evil. 
And when you have met with somebody who has had evil inflicted on them, you bet it's personal. Some kind of philosophical, atheistic explanation does not cut it, does not cut it. That's what brought me back to what the Bible has always consistently said is true, is evil is personified, it comes from a source. But I also want to say that evil is so limited. It very much concerns me in the church. We have this tendency. I think it's, I don't think we mean to. I just think we kind of fall into it. It's like it's sloppy thinking. It's almost like we talk about God is greater, is great, and the Satan is like, a, like an A minus, like almost as powerful as God. Can we just, Satan is incapable of creating. Satan cannot sustain or make life. Uh, he can only take it away. He can only distort and twist. Can we get a little more interesting? God is omnipresent. God is everywhere. Satan is in one zip code at any given time. So for example, I don't know what zip code you're in, but Satan cannot be tempting all of you at the same time. He's just not that powerful and not that present. I think sometimes we take ourselves a bit so seriously where we say, oh, Satan's tempting me right now. No, probably like a D minus demon that failed Satan's school. That's probably his, honestly, I mean, honestly. Uh, also, Satan is not a name, it's not a proper noun. Um, Satan would be a wordle because it's not a proper noun. A couple of weeks ago, I almost broke my streak on wordle because the word was Homer. I'm still angry about it. That's a proper noun, Homer. And, and wordle's like, no, no, it's a baseball term. It's a colloquialism. Anyway, so Satan is not a name, it's a description and the descriptions in, that Matthew uses is the devil and the tempter. Those are the two words that Matthew uses here. And um, one of the things that's interesting to me is, is, is the order of events that happen here. First, Jesus is baptized. Now, that is absolutely a, a, a landmine for the Jewish people to remind them of when the Israelites went through the Jordan River after being escaped from slavery. Jesus is, in some ways, reenacting and improving the journey of Moses and God's people through the Exodus. Jesus is ushering anybody who has an ear to hear into a new and improved Exodus, where rather than failing the test like the Israelites did, he passes the test. So he starts with a baptism, then God himself speaks, and God speaks to Jesus what God speaks to everyone who calls on the name of the Lord to be saved. This is my son, this is my daughter, in whom I am well pleased. A Jesus' identity rooted and established by the Father, by his relationship to the Father. So his identity is set, secured. He knows it. This is one of the key distinctives that makes Jesus Jesus and us just human beings is Jesus never left sight of his identity of whose he is. And a lot of the reason you and I get tempted and fall into temptation is because we lose sight of whose we are. Uh, Jesus never did. So he gets baptized. He then gets his identity given to him and he knows it. He then goes on this incredibly spiritually intense experience, fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. The typical fasting back in the Jewish day was much like Ramadan, which is where you fast during the day and you eat at night. Here's Jesus double dosing it, fasting during the day, fasting at night. Why did why did Matthew say he was hungry? Like Matthew's no dummy. Matthew's reminding us, yes, you can get hung up on the fact that Jesus is God, but he is as human as human gets. And then it's the author of Hebrews, for those of you who'd like to do a little homework, Hebrews in Hebrews chapter two, that really reaches back into Matthew and says, we do not have an unsympathetic high priest 
who doesn't get what it's like to be us. No, we have one who has been, the author of Hebrews says, tempted in every way like we are, and yet is without sin. Pretty breathtaking. He's then attempted by the devil. We'll go into some of that. The devil uses almost Bible, which is deadly when you, use, when you believe almost Bible instead of Bible. But then what I'm finding interesting here is this last passage. If we can just put that back up on the screen, Matthew 4, 12. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee. Man, that, I just got to say, out of everything I read, that really stopped me in my tracks. Because I think in my life, I don't know what you're like, I think I, one of the ways I struggle in my faith is when I decide when I've had enough. When I'm like, Lord, I think that's enough life that's thrown my way. You think about Jesus, you know, fasting, tempted at at his lowest point, and then he comes back, and I'm breathing a sigh of relief because he finally tells the Satan where to stick it, like he gives the devil a tape measure, and he says, why don't you go measure the distance between east and west? That'll keep you busy, and off the Satan goes to do his homework, and now Jesus is relieved, and I'm relieved as the reader. I'm like, Oh, he passed the test. Okay, here we go. Here comes the Sermon on the Mount. Here comes the Sermon on the Mount. But then this little passage right there, Jesus comes back to reality, and there's his cousin in prison, innocently put in prison. And those of you who know your story, it does not end well for John. John's faithfulness led to his martyrdom. John was martyred or killed because of his faith in Christ, not in spite of it. And, and I do think in this culture, particularly in Western culture, all of us can be prone to think that faithfulness leads to some kind of a blessing, which in Western culture, I've noticed, always seems to mean ease or smoother path. But here's Jesus right on the back of one of the most intense times in his life. And the first thing he has to grapple with is John, his cousin, his beloved cousin, being put in prison for something he never did. It, it reminds me of someone I used to work with named Caroline. When I met Caroline, she was already the mother of a quadriplegic, but she wasn't always the mother of a quadriplegic. Her teenage son dove into a swimming pool, didn't know it was at night, didn't notice it was the shallow end, and broke his neck and had spent the rest of his life in a wheelchair. So Caroline and her husband had to go from navigating a very active teenage son to 24-7 care for a, a quadriplegic. And I, I've never forgotten this. I, I worked with Caroline 25 years ago, and I've never forgotten this lesson. She came in one day to work particularly haggard, particularly exhausted. And her son had a cold. She asked us to pray for him because he had a common cold. Just the kind of cold that you and I would get that would knock us on the couch for a day where we watch Netflix. For her son, it's life and death. He gets a cold, it's life and death. And she was asking us to pray for her and her husband and their son. And she just said this thing. She said, you know, the problem is you you just believe that when your son becomes a quadriplegic, you think to yourself, well, this is more than we can bear. Nothing else bad will ever happen. But of course, life keeps happening. Have you had that? where the hits just keep on coming. And you're like, I, I think I had enough like five hits ago. How many more hits? Uh, which is where we can fall into almost Bible. I have spent my adult life trying to eliminate almost Bible from this church. And I cannot stamp it out as quick as it breathes. It's like freaking rabbits. God will not give us, we say, more than we can bear. That is not in the Bible. That's on a bumper sticker. 
It's what you say to somebody because their pain is bigger than you can bear. So all you know to do is say something stupid. By the way, if you've ever said that to someone, I'm not saying you're stupid. I'm just saying what you said was stupid. It's not quite as bad. <laughs> Don't blame God for it. That is not in your scripture. God will never give us more than we can bear. Isn't life itself more than we can bear, which is the context that makes us cry out to God, Lord, save us. Lord, if without you, I'm nowhere. Without you, I'm nothing. Okay, let's take a look at the temptation of Jesus, and then I want to really honor Matthew and show what Matthew's showing us. Just a couple of quick things. Temptation is aimed to knock you off your core identity, if you are the son of God. And I think humans, the reason we fall into temptation is we have forgotten whose we are. And what the tempter does is having knocked us off our core identity, the tempter then puts an assumption on top of our core identity. If you are the son of God, then you should do this. And in the moment to human beings, there's something in our head that says, that sounds perfectly reasonable. I cannot tell you how many people I have met with, they're on a very brave journey of sobriety, a very brave journey of sobriety. And oftentimes, one of the roles of a pastor is to be there in that transition moment from, I have to have the bottle to live to, I'm going to go and get actual help. And the amount of people that have said to me, I simply cannot imagine my life without it. I cannot imagine that I could ever have a good life without it. That's because their identity has been knocked off and the assumptions have stacked on top of the identity. But temptation cannot withstand a core identity of belovedness. If you can work this week, not so much on resisting temptation, more so on understanding your rooted and establishedness in being, being the belovedness of God. I like the way that John Mark Comer says it. He says, the danger is less in the lies that we tell than the lies that we believe. That's what gets humans into trouble. And for so many people in this room, one of the biggest challenges is you believe the voice of your inner critic and the voice of shame and condemnation in your head more than you believe the voice of God. And I think, I think your homework this week is by faith and it does take a lot of faith and a lot of courage to slowly and gently start to believe that God knows what God's talking about more than you know what you're talking about. It's not a one and done experience, at least in my life. It's a multiple year journey. What I've learned to do in my life is learn to notice that my thinking patterns are a form of a gospel. And they put me on a path and they offer me a promise, but they never pay off on the promise. And sometimes I need others' help, sometimes the help of friends, sometimes the help of a therapist, for example, or a spiritual director, just to help me think about the way I think. Is it in line with Scripture? Not in a right and wrong, not in a shame way, but am I believing the good news? Because so often what the message in my head is not good news, it's, it's condemnation and shame. And yet, our identity as Christians, those of us in this room who are followers of Christ, it's rooted in whose we are. I think this is the other great challenge in 21st century Western culture. We're so obsessed with self-actualization. We are self-actualizing ourselves to death. Not who we are. Who we are is inherently interesting for maybe a generation or so. Whose we are, who we belong to, who gives us our identity, who gives us our righteousness, not because of anything we have done, but because of what Christ has done. The way Tim Keller puts it, he says, the number one lie Satan tells us as humans is that we can 
prove ourselves. Okay, but quite honestly, as much as I've spent a chunk of our time on us, this passage really isn't designed to help you and I overcome temptation. That's not why Matthew wrote it. It is to show that Jesus passed the test that we fail. And because Jesus passed the test, we don't have to. When we are tested, we don't have to fight the test on our own. We can stand in Christ. And Matthew is alluding to the past when he tells us this narrative, and he's also alluding to the future. So in the past, those of you who want to do your homework, you can read the Exodus passage where Moses leads the people through the Jordan River, essentially a baptism, and then they wander in the wilderness, the same wilderness, by the way, that Jesus wandered in, not for 40 days like Jesus did, but for 40 years. They failed the test, Jesus passed the test, but not just Moses and the Jews, also Adam. You don't think about this much, right? Adam, the only other sinless human being, Adam and Eve, aside from Jesus, Adam failed the test. Moses failed the test. Jesus passed the test. What's fascinating to me is it's not about us living right. It's about the righteousness of Christ. It's about Jesus redeeming our wrongs, not us getting it right. It's about Jesus redeeming Israel wrongs, Israel's wrongs because of his righteousness. And of course, because he was tempted, he's able to sympathize. He knows what it's like to be human. But, but Matthew's not just connecting us to the past. He's also dropping these little landmines all through his gospel. After temptation, the next thing Jesus did was preach a sermon. I know how that feels. And Jesus said, having fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, what was in that sermon on the mount? Do not worry, Jesus said, about what you will eat or what you will drink. This was like fresh off, like he was already underweight preaching the sermon on the mount. He's already gaunt. Did you ever see uh, Hugh Jackman in the movie um, Les Miserables? He fasted for over a month to get gaunt. That's what Jesus looked like when he was preaching the Sermon on the Mount, when he said, do not worry about what you will eat and what you will drink. That's because Jesus' temptation was primarily about trust. Do I trust that the Father is good no matter what my circumstances? Do I trust the Father to guide me into places even if I don't want to go into them? And then in that same sermon, Jesus' prayer in that same sermon where he prays, he actually teaches the people on the mount to pray, and he says, lead us not into temptation. I just wrote a note here. Don't we mostly lead ourselves into temptation? Lead us not into temptation. That's a weird thing to pray to God. Like, isn't that weird when a human says, God, please don't tempt me? God's like, I didn't really have in mind to do so. I think what Jesus is doing here in the Sermon on the Mount, in the, in the Lord's Prayer, is when he has us pray, lead us not into temptation, I don't think it's actually a request. I think it's a reminder that we do not have to fight our battles alone. We have one who has passed the test. So every time we pray the Lord's Prayer, we're praying to the one who passed the test. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus was tempted. When Peter attacked the soldier, that was a test. When he stood in front of the Sanhedrin and Pontius Pilate on trial for his life, that was a test. And of course, on the cross, once again, a tempter came to Jesus in the form of the scoffers with the same test that he passed in the wilderness, if you are the Son of God. 
What I'd like to do is invite Dave and the team to come out because they're going to lead us in a time of worship. And it's really important to me as we go into worship and then as we go into communion that we can do it in a spirit of celebration that we have a God who passed the test so we don't have to. So I would like to read Jesus on the cross passing the test, defeating the powers of evil, not like just a second time, but once and for all. I mean, what I'm about to read is why we gather. This is why we gather. Some of you even this morning are like, should we go today? I don't know. It's a nice day. Let's not go. What's that about, by the way? Beautiful weather. Don't go to church. That makes no sense to me whatsoever. The reason we come is to remember whose we are. And those of you who are not followers of Christ, on any given Sunday, Discovery is a place that radically welcomes anybody from any background. Those of you who have never given your life to Christ, this is why you do it, because you don't have to pass the test on your own. You don't have to live your life on your own strength. You get to die to yourself and be resurrected in the power of this. So I'm going to invite us to stand as we prepare to worship. And let me read this passage. Matthew 27, Jesus on the cross passing the test. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the son of God. In the same way, the chief priest, the teachers of the law and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he cannot save himself, which by the way, that mockery is absolutely true. Jesus had a choice to save himself or save us, and it was nothing but net. It was like a Steph Curry three-pointer, all swish. He saved us. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. That's the accusation. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him, for he said, I'm the son of God. And in the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. We worship Jesus because he withstood the test for us. He passed the test. We get the benefit. That's the gospel. That's what we believe in this church. And anybody gets it. So if you've never received that after the service, after Dave dismisses us at the end, uh, we'll have a couple of people down front. I'll be down front. If you have never, ever given your life to Jesus Christ, that's the invitation today. You can come and fold your life into Christ. The old is gone, the new has come. For those of us who are in Christ, maybe just a needed reminder today of whose we are, of what our identity is in Christ. Let me hand over to Dave and the team as we worship this God now.